I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll be looking at that passage in particular and the implications it has for some of the things that we've been uh, teaching and looking at uh, as a church. So this morning we're going to tackle the kind of the culmination question or the summary question of the series we've been doing on the church, and that is how and why we must do these things, all the various things that uh, we have looked at over the past several months. Before we uh, dig into that, I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer. So let's uh, pray to our Lord and our God together. Our Lord God, we do want to praise you. We want to join the chorus of all of those who are the redeemed. Lord, those of the redeemed from thousands of years past, those joining with the, with the church and with the apostles and the prophets and the saints since then. Lord, with those who've been martyred for your name and those who have been faithful, Lord God, those who call upon your name even this day. We want to join our voices to the grand chorus of eternity that will rise up and call you blessed, that will praise your name. So help us to do that, Lord God, through this time in your word, to give your word the attention uh, it deserves, to rightly understand it, Lord. Help me to clearly explain it and for us all to submit to the authority of your word given to us uh, for our instruction, our growth, encouragement, Lord, and just instructing us in how we are to live our lives. Help us to do that now, Lord. Bring blessing upon your word in our lives. It's the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now, as I mentioned to you, the past, uh, we, past several months we've been looking at why we do the things we do as a church on Sunday mornings. So we've, we've examined the various parts of our ministry to God and to each other that compromise, uh, comprise a uh, typical Sunday morning service. So we have looked at why we meet together on Sundays, why we pray together, why we sing together why we give attention to the public reading of Scripture, why we give financially uh, to the church, why we are devoted to the preaching of God's Word and, and the corollary, listening to God's Word, why we observe communion, why we practice baptism, and why we serve. And then the last couple of weeks we've looked at why we must have biblically qualified men to preach and teach the Word of God to us. Now having looked at the individual parts uh, of our service we now want to take a step back and kind of look at the whole. Look at the whole of our Sunday morning service and ask the question, how and and why must we do these things? So instead of looking at these individual parts and asking why we must do these things, we want to look at the whole and ask why we do these things. And not only should we ask why we do these things, but we should ask how we do these things. After all, there are many people around the world who gather together in the, in the name of worshiping God merely to go through the motions, uh, as we say. They go through the motions of worship. And to the Pharisees and to people like these uh, and to every religious person like them, Jesus says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You know, God's not fooled by external uh, 
actions. He's not fooled by the religious man's shell game. His gaze pierces to the heart. And, and we can do everything we do as a church. It could be all the right things, but if we do it for the wrong reasons and in the wrong manner, God is not going to be pleased with these things. God's Word instructs us in what we do as a church, but also in how we do what we do, and ultimately why we do what we do in our worship services. So this morning we'll be looking at why and how, or how and why we must do these things. These things referring to the, the various aspects of our service which we've covered in, in the past. And those uh, messages on our, on our website for download if you want to review them. This morning I want us to understand that it's, it's ultimately the glory of God that dictates how and why we, we do what we do as a church. It's ultimately the glory of God. And I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I would like to read to you, uh, beginning in verse 23 to verse 31. In this context, Paul is, is dealing with uh, an issue, a particular issue, but from that particular issue, he's going to draw out a timeless principle for us. And it is that timeless principle that I want you to look for as we read through this passage. So, again, I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you... And you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Now this passage of scripture, actually there are quite a few I would consider life principles we could draw out from there. But the one I want to draw your attention to this morning is found in verse 31. And that is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, there was, a, there was, there was contention within the Corinthian church. Some were understanding of the fact of, of God's salvation and how he rescued them out of the kingdom of darkness, brought them into the kingdom of light, and how there really aren't false gods. There, there's only one true God so the, the so-called idols that the Corinthian culture worshipped weren't, weren't really idols at all. In fact, Paul deals with that earlier in the context. He says these aren't idols, they're really just demons. Demons masquerading behind these idols so as to lead people astray. And so when, so, when, the, when you go into someone's house, and uh, knowing that that person is a pagan, an unbeliever, they, they probably bought their meat from the meat market, and that meat market was largely sacrificed to idols of that time. 
in that culture. And Paul's saying, don't worry about it. Don't even ask where they bought this. Just eat it, knowing that there is no such thing as a false god. You're going to receive it with thankfulness and eat it. But he says this, but if someone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, and in the context it's saying, hey, as a Christ, it's insinuating as a Christian, you, you shouldn't be eating this, should you? Because you worship the one God, not all these false gods. Paul's saying, for conscience sake, for that of the weaker person, and as well as the unbeliever, do not eat it. Not because you can't. And, and ultimately, when he's saying whether you eat or whether you drink, and, and notice he doesn't really mention drink in this, but whether you eat or drink, there's a larger principle in play here, and that is this, verse 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So for the glory of God, you can set aside your right to eat meat or to drink whatever it is or do whatever it is for the, for the greater cause of the kingdom of God. And it is, it is that principle that I want us to contemplate uh, and, and really think through as we, why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. We, we don't do it just to go through the motions. We do it to glorify God. Now, that's a term that's thrown around, um, and probably a lot of churches use that term, and hopefully they mean that. But I don't want us to just flippantly say, yeah, we, we seek to glorify God. I want us to understand it. So how do we glorify God? Well, we start by learning from Jesus. Jesus' earthly ministry was, was totally characterized by his zeal to glorify the Father. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus could prayerfully declare to the Father, and we find this in John seventeen four. he says, I glorified you on the, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave, have given me to do. Notice that, I have glorified you on earth, and he, and he gives a tangible aspect to that. He's just not saying that he did some miraculous sign, though Jesus did those. But he points it to this, he says, I accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And, and I think that's a good summary way to think about how we glorify God. How does you know, a, a mother glorify God? How does a father glorify God? How does a, a worker glorify God and, at, at work? How do we as a church glorify God here on Sunday morning? It is this, that we do the work that he has given us to do, that we accomplish the work that he has given us to do. Yes, our work is different than Christ's work. Thank the Lord, because we would be horrible saviors. He is the one savior. So we're not trying to, to uh, do what he has done, but what we are trying to do is to cooperate with what he has begun. And we could ask ourselves, well, what work has God given us to do? Well, think about this. Let me uh, read to you a familiar passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, listen, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Sounds mighty familiar to what Jesus said as far as accomplishing the work God's given us to do. So what work does God give us? It is those good works those good works which he has prepared for us to do. He has prepared for you to do. Each one of us, individually and collectively. You know, that's, that's amazing to think about. How God, 
as a basis of our salvation, which is totally by faith in Christ alone, he says, I've saved you to go do good works. And by the way, these good works are not ones you have to go invent. You have to go do or you have to conjure up all your own. He goes, I've prepared them. He has prepared them beforehand that we would walk in them. He's paved the way. He's just asking us to be faithful and to carry out what he's asked us to do. That's your life mission should be to to walk in those good works which he has prepared beforehand for you and for us as a church. Another way to think about how do we glorify God is found in Jesus' words in John 15, 8. He says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That we bear fruit. Bearing fruit is parallel to the idea of walking in the good works which God has prepared for us. See, good works isn't just the external things. It's, these are spiritual things, whether they be internal and external, uh, that God has prepared for us. We can glorify God by exercising control over our bodies, our appetites. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 commands us, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So to glorify God is carrying out the work that he has given you to do. It's it's doing those good works which he has prepared beforehand for you. It is bearing fruit. It is exercising control, self-control over your bodies for his glory. We also glorify God through our witness to unbelievers. We glorify God when we suffer for his namesake. 1 Peter 4.15 tells us this. Listen to the apostle Peter's words. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. I guess in summary, how do we glorify him? It's essentially by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us so that in reliance upon the spirit of God, we live in a way that reflects the life of God within you. And think about that, and I'll repeat it. How do we glorify God? By letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you, so that in reliance upon the Spirit of God, you live in a way that reflects the life of God within you. God is glorified when your life reflects His. When your love reflects His love, when your patience reflects His patience, when your ways reflect His ways. It's it's mirroring what God would do. Uh, Jesus, obviously the ultimate servant of God, said he only did what he saw his father doing. He only said what he heard his father saying. He was just he was that he was the image of the invisible God, and in a much lesser sense, we are called to do that. We are not little gods with a little G. We are ambassadors. There's a difference between. God and his ambassadors. So Jesus was God, the ultimate ambassador. We are his people, and we are, as his ambassadors, we are called to reflect his life. So ultimately, as we think about um, how to glorify God, think about the, the tangible, practical ways in which you can walk in those deeds which God has prepared before, for you to do how you are to exercise control of your body, how you are to to live for the the greater good that he of serving the church and others and being his ambassador. 
So all these things uh, would fall under that banner. But there are many practical ways in which this flushes out uh, in each one of our lives. Now in seeking to glorify God, we need to see that, that this purpose guides everything in, in, that we do as a church or, or should. So seeking to glorify God in everything requires us to, to, that we seek to be living sacrifices to God instead of seeking lives of ease and comfort or ease and entertainment. So what I want to do at this, at this stage is to really help us walk through uh, applying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Uh, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I want to help us to think through uh, how these things impact what we do as a church, why we do them, and how we do them as a church. And, and the first point is, is what I've already stated, is that is seeking to glorify God in everything requires that we seek to be a living sacrifice to God instead of seeking lives of ease and entertainment. There's a, there's a mentality shift that needs to happen in our, in our lives in order for us to approach Sunday morning worship with the right uh, manner. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul is using the analogy of like the Old Testament worship, where you would bring a sacrifice to the temple, uh, be it a bull or a pigeon or a goat or sheep or grain. There were various offerings that God's people were commanded to bring in order to worship God. But here, because Christ has paid the full, the full price for our penalty, for our sins, here Paul is not commanding us to bring the blood of a lamb or a goat or anything like that. But he's calling us that it, as a result of what Christ has done to live our lives as living sacrifices, not, not ones that require a, a more shedding of blood, but to live in such a way where we live as living sacrifices, holy, a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. And that he describes this as your um, spiritual service of worship. So ultimately, when we, when we want to come together for the glory of God, we must realize that God calls us to live sacrificially. And that's going to look differently for each person and probably each church and different cultures. What does it mean to live sacrificially? It's a mindset that we need to approach life with. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy things or you go around suffering all the time. But it means that you, you have an attitude uh, that you are willing to sacrifice for the Lord, to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. Uh, we see the, this pictured, I think, in Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to his words. He, he tells Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul is reminding Timothy that the, the life of ministry, which is not just the pastor's duty, I remind you. The pastor is to lead the way. And really, Timothy was not the pastor of, uh, in Ephesus. He was an apostle delegate. He was to help correct some things in Ephesus. 
and to teach, but he was at a point elders, the elders being the pastors there at the church. But he was calling Timothy to suffer hardship, to have that mentality. We're, we're not to have the mentality of peacetime. In other words, we're supposed to have a, a wartime mentality, a spiritual wartime mentality. You know, it's easy in our culture, relatively easy in our culture, just to be lulled into um, kind of a spiritual doldrum into thinking that life should offer us peace and happiness. After all, that's the American dream, right? And by God's grace, we do experience so much uh, peace, and you could say a lot of ble- physical blessings. And that while that is a blessing we could be thankful for, we also need to realize that that, that can lead us to dull thinking and, and to, to, to not be ready for the spiritual battle around us, and to not be ready to make sacrifices when we're called upon to make sacrifices. I think Timothy was in a dangerous position, hence that's why Paul wrote this. He was was really reminding Timothy that the path of ministering to God is a path of sacrifice. The author of Hebrews, whoever he may be, wrote this. He said, through Jesus, then let us offer up let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect in doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. You see, sometimes God provides us opportunities. These are the good works. I relate to the good works that we talked about. But, but it, the, to, to pursue some of these good works is going to require sacrifice. It's going to put us out of our comfort. It's going to take us out of the areas where we would normally want to go or to do things we would normally not want to do. Doing the things we do as a church on Sunday morning will require your active involvement. It's not enough for you just to come and take up space in a chair. That doesn't please God. Coming requires active participation, even in listening to the preaching of God's Word. And, and that requires you to do, do things differently, even in small ways. Making sure that you get enough sleep so that you're not coming here so exhausted and tired that you, you can't listen. Or so focused on your own self that you don't take time to talk to others or minister to others or to care about others or to pray for others. Right? So the Lord works in our lives through each other and we need each other to come together to minister to one another and that, that does require, in a very small way, uh, sacrifices of our lives. Our, our worship services are, are not designed for entertainment. They're not. If they were, you would have a different pastor, um, and you would be different people. Right? So we, but we have to remind ourselves of that, that we're, that we're not here for entertainment. Uh, we are here to be edified, edified by the Word of God, edified by each other, encouraged by one another, and strengthened by one another. And our worship services are designed for you to actively participate in, both before, during, and after, uh, as an act of worship to our Lord, to our God. So, in summary, seeking to glorify God in everything requires, first of all, that we seek to be living sacrifices to God instead of seeking lives of ease and entertainment. Secondly, We need to see that glorifying God in everything requires us to do everything with excellence. 
rather than just doing enough to get by. You know there's the old adage, it's good enough for government work? Well, I don't know how exactly that got started, but think about if the um, engineers and the mathematicians who helped the first astronauts get into space, what if they approached their work that way? What if they approached the assembly of the capsule or the timing of the return of the capsule in such a way to say, ah, you know, it's good enough for government work? Well, you know what would happen. You know what would happen? They would, n- they would not have successfully gotten to space, and if they would have, they wouldn't have returned safely. Right? It, re- it requires precision. It requires excellence in order to accomplish something like that. And the Lord calls us to serve each one of us with that attitude of excellence. Listen to, to Peter's words. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Peter says this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, just think about that imagery. God's given you a gift, and here he calls it a special gift, or you could call it a grace gift. God's given you that gift, and why do you think that he's given it to you? So that you can use it haphazardly. So you can use it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I'll give it half effort. Well, listen, he, he ties it. He says this, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As a good steward. Now, now suppose you had a, a steward, a real steward, and, and you gave him the task of um, mowing the lawn. Go mow the lawn. Now, what would happen if the steward went out and just, till, you know, it took about a half hour to get the lawnmower started to begin with. And then once he got it started, then he just kind of like meandered through the lawn. Just haphazardly, just kind of paying more attention to his iTunes than to the grass. And then he gets done. And you look at him kind of funny and saying. What's going on? You know, the grass is all unevenly cut. It just doesn't look good. Well, that's kind of a silly analogy, but that's how some of us approach service to one another and to the church. We just do it haphazardly and, well, just as we want to do it, without concern for for the greater good. No, a steward who wants to do a good job to to honor his master will cut the lawn, even something as menial as cutting the lawn, do it the right way so that when people drive by, they don't look and say, oh, look at that guy. He's got a horrible steward. That guy must not care about how his lawn looks. Again, it's a silly example, but, but the point is that God has given us a gift to use with excellence. And again, hear me out. I'm not talking about perfection. You know, when God grants a gift, he grants a limit to that gift. Right? So what he wants you to do is to use it to the extent that he's given it to you. The example um, is easy to understand, I think, in the realm of preachers and teachers. There are many pastors and teachers all have the gift of preaching and teaching, at least the ones that are biblically qualified do, but not all of us have the same amount of gifting. And that's easily recognized. Some are much more gifted than than others. But the point is that 1 Peter, um, and I just want to go back to that, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says is this, and that is this, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
So this has grand implications for us as a church. Whatever your gifting is, use it so that when the job is done, that people glorify God. You don't get the glory. It's not, you know, it's, we're not pursuing excellence so that people can pat you on the back, right? Though they may say, hey, I really appreciate the good job that you did with this. And you can say, praise the Lord. I did it for him and not for my own namesake. That's really how we're to approach ministry to one another and ministry as a church. Uh, you may be asked to do something that you don't think is your gifting, and I understand that. You do the best that you can. But, but just serve to the best of your ability. And we see this pictured for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 8, where Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Notice that. Calling slaves to serve their masters as if they're serving Christ. He says, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service or as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So, as we come together as a church, we need to serve whatever you're doing, setting up communion, straightening chairs, printing bulletins, greeting, oh, helping in the nursery, helping clean up something that spilled, whatever it is, do it for the glory of God. Do it as to the Lord. And this has implications as well to our, to our places of work as well. I mean, why do we labor so hard uh, at jobs where really we're building products and making things that are bound to burn up? They're not eternal. So why, why do them? Why do we labor so hard for something so temporal? Why? It's contained within this principle. We work as unto the Lord. Lord has, the Lord has called us to do work. And, and if we do that work as unto Him, it has an eternal benefit in bringing praises and glory to his name. The Lord calls us to do our best in using the skills that God has given us. Listen, listen to Psalm 136, verses 4 to 8. And this is a psalm that we usually would read like at Thanksgiving. It carries the, a tag, um, a repetition of his loving kindness is everlasting and, and about his, how, how good he is. So think, this, this, I'm going to read, only read to you verses 4 to 8, Psalm 136. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, just think about the first part of those phrases. The second part is just an echo, how, how God's loving kindness is everlasting. And in these great things that he has done, these reflect his loving kindness. But here, here, he, this is how the uh, psalmist describes God. To him who does great wonders, not just mediocre, not half-hearted, but great wonders. To him who made the heavens, and notice he just doesn't say made the heavens, he made the heavens with skill. With skill. Right? That the heavens reflect the glory of God. We know that. But in order for the heavens to reflect the glory of God, God had to make the heavens with, with skill. 
And when we use the skills and talents that God has given us, we reflect our creator. Ultimately, it's, it's for his glory that he gave us those skills and gave us um, those talents. And we're to use them for him. God gives people skill and he calls them uh, to use it for his glory. There's a, a really some neat illustrations of this in the Old Testament. I'm just going to point you to uh, one and I'll just mention, uh, mention the second. The first one I'm going to point to is just in Exodus 35. Verses 30, really through the first part of Exodus 36. You can just jot that down and go look at that. But it's, it's basically how God gave artisans skill to build a temple. He gave them that skill. And he gave them the skill and he gave them the ability to be able to teach that skill to others so that they could really serve as, as managers of that project and of that work so that when, that, when the uh, tabernacle and, and later on in the temple were, were built, that Though that temple reflected the skill of God that he gave those men and women. I want to, I, I'd like you to, um, to, to contemplate from 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And this is in a, in a time where um, David is king and he is getting ready to pass the baton on to his uh, baton of leadership to his son, uh, Solomon. But in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 28, beginning at verse 20, um, there's something uh, that, that really, I guess an illustration of the principle which we're talking. So First Chronicles chapter 28, beginning at verse 20. Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord my God, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Now behold, there are divisions of the priests and of the Levites for the service of the house of God, and every willing man of any skill will be with you in all the work for all kinds of service. The officials also and all the people will be entirely at your command. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now think about what he's saying there. Here's this great task. The Lord has given specific instructions on how things are to be built. And he's given men and women skill and talent to be able to, to, to build a temple. But here, here's the principle that I want you to see is that this, this building was unlike any other building. Why? That, look at that last phrase. The work is great, David says. And why is the work great? You ever look at the temple? Now, not Herod's temple. Herod's temple was very large and quite grand in an in a external sense. Right? The temple that David built, if you look at it uh, uh, as far as in the grand scale of buildings, it wasn't that large. I mean, it really wasn't. So why is he saying it's a great work? Well, listen, he tells us, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. And so the implication there is that the building is great, not because of its size, but because who the, the building was to represent. The temple was to re- represent God. And so in every little detail, they wanted every little detail to reflect the skill, 
handiwork and majesty of God. I think there's a beautiful illustration of what the Lord calls us to do with our lives. We're not called to build physical temples, but we are called to use our skill, the skills he's given us with excellence. And so whatever we do, whatever part of our service before, after, during, we need to pursue that with, with excellence. Uh, and again, I want to say, not with, we're not looking for perfection. Right? Perfection is the effort of the person of their own sake to do things absolutely right so they get the glory. Right? That's what we're so prone to do. Well, some of us are, like me. I'm so prone to want to just get it 100% perfect. But you know, God often uses imperfect things for his glory. Right? So we, we just need to recognize that. That we are called to pursue everything with excellence. So a, a call is that, that each one of us would work in the same way. We, when we serve in the church or when we work during, during the week, we need to use our skills that God has given us for his glory by doing our very best. Whether it's reading of the word of God or preaching of the word of God or listening to the word of God or singing together with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and serving one another, encouraging one another to love and good deeds. So seeking to glorify God in everything requires us to do everything with excellence rather than just doing enough to get by. Now let's look at another. Some of these I'm going to mention um, just in, in briefer fashion than, than these, uh, than the first couple, just, just so you'll uh, be aware of that. The, the third really implication of seeking to glorify God in everything requires that we do everything by faith rather than sight. It requires that we do everything by faith rather than sight. Well, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. And Paul really emphasized, I want you to get a glimpse of Paul's life. Because we, we so think, we so equate the blessing of God with external success that we must reorient ourselves as, a, as individuals, as individual believers, and as followers of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to what a very highly successful, highly respected Apostle Paul went through. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Now listen, that all sounds grand up to this point. Now listen. Okay. Verse 4, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. He adds in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and in the Holy Spirit and genuine love. In the word of truth and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Now how in the world can, can Paul say these things? 
How in the world can Paul say that, like he does in um, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. He can say these things because he's looking at things by faith and not by sight. Physically, he endured much difficulty. And he lists some of those in beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness. And beyond all that, then he had the churches, uh, some of the false teachers and false apostles were attacking him. And, and that's where some of these other accusations come out uh, that he talks about. In verse 8, by evil report and good report, regard as deceivers yet true. You know, the false apostles attacked Paul and called him, a, called him a false teacher, and yet he was the true teacher. You, you see, we need to understand that, that God often works in very different ways than we would. You know, we would have Christ immediately ride in on the white horse. And there would be great difficulties with that, because then we, we wouldn't have a Savior. But when we think about a person blessed of God, you don't picture the Apostle Paul. And you don't picture Christ's first coming. It just doesn't factor in. And, and we need to understand that following Christ and being a, a, a Christian in this age and being a church in this age means that we've got to walk by sight. That there are times when it's just going to look like externally, people are going to look at us and say, man, there's something wrong with that church. Uh, they must not have the blessing of God because, man, the parking lot's not packed. Pews aren't packed. Don't have a huge numbers to show for it or they don't have any external ministries that really mount to much. So our culture is so indoctrinated. We are so indoctrinated into looking at visible things visibly. But when God chose a king for Israel, who did he choose? Not the tallest. Now, David became a mighty warrior, but he wasn't a mighty warrior when God chose him. He was a little shepherd boy, teenage shepherd boy. But God saw the heart. Hebrews, we don't take time to, to turn there now, but think about that. Just read through Hebrews chapter 11. I said I wasn't going to read it, but I've I got to read some of it. I'm compelled. Hebrews chapter 11. 11. We call the chapter the Hall of Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made unto things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You see how Abel is praised, and yet in, in the grand design and mystery of God, what happened to Abel? He was murdered by his brother. Right? And so the world will look at that and say, well, if Abel was really blessed by God, why didn't God keep him alive? Why didn't God protect him? So again, just a small example. This whole chapter is filled with people like Abel who went through great difficulty, tumults, who were murdered for the name of God. And yet, it was by faith that they willingly did this. They joyfully did this. 
And, and as a church, we, we need to, to understand this. I'll just pick up. I encourage you to read the whole chapter, as, uh, maybe as a family, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. But pick up in verse 39. Well, let, let, actually, I'd like to um, pick up in verse 35, just to give us a little flavor of what the, what, what the author is rallying us to. He says, women received the back, back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, affected, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Sounds, sounds like a really successful plan, doesn't it? Right? Not by the world's standards. But look at the verse 39. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now think about that. That great cloud of witnesses, that's not your loved ones looking down from heaven upon you. That's not what this is talking about. It's not saying that people in heaven can look down upon us and that in the clouds they're, they're witnessing how we run. It's not that. What it's saying is it's pointing to, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, what witnesses? All the ones he just talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. They are witnesses to us. Their lives reflect lives of faith. So too, our lives are to be lives of faith. We're to see them as examples, as as witnesses to us, that we are called to live a life by faith. And, you know, as a small church, it's it's really important for us to to really hammer this through. Important for me as a pastor, but important for you as a congregation. Because it's easy for small churches in our culture to get discouraged. It's easy for us to think, well, if we do all the right things, then God will bless us, right? God will add to our numbers. It's easy for me to fall into that thinking, so I'm sure it's easy for you to fall into that thinking as well. But we must understand that God calls to walk by faith. We don't walk by recipe. Similar to parenting. You're called to parent by faith. Parenting's not a recipe. Oh, if you do X, Y, and Z, your child's going to turn out okay and they're going to make all wise decisions. It, it doesn't work that way. Parenting is a life venture. Being a church is a life venture. Following Christ is a life venture. John Benton, in his book, uh, The Big Picture for Small Churches, uh, said something that ministered to me and I think will minister to you as well. He says this. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. He does not do the things the way the world expects. One might say with reverence that the Father is often a lateral thinker, quote-unquote. Our God is a God who uses the lowly and despised to shame the big and glamorous and selects the weak things to shame the strong, that all the glory might go to Him. And he references there uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He continues, we live in a society that worships at the shrine of size. We buy our food at supermarkets and hypermarkets. Monster music uh, events are promoted for the young. Mega sales are advertised in department stores. Blockbuster movies appear in our cinemas. 
In the world's eyes, if something is not big, it does not deserve attention. It is not easy to be upbeat about a church with just a few in the congregation when we live alongside such a cultural bias. But we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Unquote. And that's our call. So we do all we do, not as a recipe to grow a church, but to glorify God and to walk by faith. And how are we to be encouraged as a small church? By looking at how great God is. That's often my problem. My, My problem is I look at who's not here, or I look at how weak I am, or how weak a situation we're in, rather than looking upon the grandeur and greatness of our Almighty God. I mean, think about that. Contemplate uh, passages like Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. And I just want to read it for you. Isaiah 40, 26 to 31. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why? Because He supplies the strength. He supplies the inspiration to do what we need to do. So seeking to glorify God requires that we do everything by faith and not by sight. And not, that helps us to not grow weary in doing what is right. There, there are some other principles here I have. That I'm just going to mention them to you uh, for the sake of time. That we will not go through them. But these things should also guide us. The next one, the fourth implication, is seeking to glorify, seeking to glorify God in everything requires that we be dependent upon God in all we do. And, and uh, for that, I'd like to reference Matthew chapter 6. And, and there it's talking about you know, clothing, food, um, the things are essentials of life that we need. And at the end of it, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And really, as application, applying to, uh, to us as a church, God knows who we need, what we need, and we need not be um, concerned with who is or who is not here or the, or the number of people who are or are not here. God will provide what we need as a church. The fifth implication that I want to just to highlight is that seeking to glorify God in everything requires that we fervently love God and each other. And here, think about the Lord's words uh, to, the, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 1 to 7, and how he, he commends them for all the right things they've done, but at the end of it, he rebukes them for having left their first love, and that was their love for him. And we're reminded that Jesus said um, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So in, in doing these things, we need to do it with an attitude of, of love towards God and towards each other. So seeking the glory of God requires that we be living sacrifices to God instead of seeking to, be, to lead lives of ease and entertainment. It requires us to do everything with excellence rather than just doing enough to get by. It requires that we do everything by faith rather than sight. It requires that we be dependent upon God in all we do. And it requires that we fervently love one another. And, and I just want to mention that when, when Paul calls us um, to do everything for the glory of God, it is not only our responsibility and our privilege, but it is also uh, comes with an accountability before our Lord and our God. So Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'd like to, to turn your attention to that. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Seeking to glorify God in everything requires that we always aim to be pleasing to Him rather than to those around us. And here's how the Lord offers um, accountability to us and, and at the same time rewards. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll say the beginning of verse 6, really. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing while we were at home in, in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be home with the, and to be with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Now, Paul's saying whether, whether we live, stay here, whether we go, our goal is ultimately to be pleasing to Him. To, in other words, to glorify Him. Look at verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, may, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this, this judgment that is spoken of here is not the judgment of unbelievers. So for all Christians, Christ has dealt with the punishment of sin completely. Right? It's radically and totally erased. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is, is using really the analogy of the, this judgment seat, of the bema seat, often used in, in the realm of athleticism. So the ones who, does, who ran the race so as to get a prize would come to the bema seat to receive their reward. And, and what, he's, what he's saying here, whether... When he be, that the Lord is going to judge us so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. He, he's not talking good or bad in a moral sense. He's talking about his better or best. There are, there are temporal things that, that many of us spend our lives working on that just don't have any impact at all in the kingdom of God. And what he's saying there is it, it, the Lord is going to reward us for those, tie it back into what we did in preparing those good, the Lord has prepared these good works for us ahead of time. The Lord is going to reward you for walking in those good works which he has prepared. And, and where we have made decisions, where we have not walked in those, then there's a loss of reward. But the good news is the Lord rewards faithfulness to those who walk in his ways. And again, this is not a judgment of sin. That's been dealt with completely at, at, at the ultimate uh, bema seat of Christ dying for our sins. This is the Lord rewarding. And isn't it isn't it interesting that the Lord rewards us for doing work that He's prepared beforehand? You see how even in the reward, we can't take credit. He gets the glory. He gives us the reward, 
And we offer it back up to him saying, Lord, it's yours as you did this through me. And, and that's why we do what we do as a church. It's, it's to glorify our Lord and our God and to recognize that the Lord is going to hold us accountable and we want to be faithful. We want to hear at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that there's none of that, that, that commendation the Lord provides is, is, can only be obtained by faith through Christ and not on our own works. As there is none righteous who can approach God and hear that in our own efforts. So, beloved, I just uh, want to encourage you to, to um, realize that all we do um, as a church is for the glory of God, and each aspect of our service is, is designed and coordinated so as to help us glorify God individually and collectively as a church. And I just want to uh, call you to do the same in your own personal lives, to seek to glorify God in everything. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we want to thank you that you have given us instruction, that you have given us each other, that you've given us your word and your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord God, to apply this as a church, to seek to glorify you in everything. And may, as believers, Lord, you help us to apply this to every area of our lives, to our lives as husbands and how they love their wives and to wives and how they interact Uh, Lord, in respect and submit to their husbands, how children submit to their parents as unto the Lord. Lord, how we work for our employers and how we interact with our neighbors and how we uh, use the skills and the talents and the spiritual gifts you have given to us. Help us to use them for your glory, your honor, and the building up of your kingdom. It's the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen.